We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. If you're uh, new to this space or new to our community, every time um, we gather uh, from the beginning, 1992, when my dad, along with Pastor Don and others, uh, started this church with some 20 people at the Courtyard Marriott in Bellevue. Since that day to now, every time we gather, we go to this book, uh, which we believe uh, is the story of God's incredible love for each and every one of us. You're going to hear good news today, not bad news, and so you don't have to feel nervous. Uh, you can relax a little bit and enjoy God's incredible love for you. God is not mad at you. There's not a big, cosmic, eternal uh, uh, scowl on his face towards you. He is smiling at you. He loves you. And even if your mom tricked you to coming today, made you come today, uh, God, God loves you so much. Second, Second Timothy. Chapter 3 and verse 16. We've been doing a collection of talks entitled The Other 316. And uh, we base it, of course, on John 316, the scripture Tim Tebow wrote. Okay, let's get it going. And um, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. In an effort to further understand the implications and the ramifications of John 3.16, we're going to other chapter 3 and verse 16 passages in the Bible to continue to explore and remind ourselves all that Jesus has done for us. And so it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and helping 40-year-olds beat students at church home college. I think that's in there too. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for the moments we share as a community. God, we reflect on a life well lived. Thank you for Pastor Don. Thank you for his faith, his trust in you. Lord, his generosity, may that continue to grow in our lives. May we live and love like you, Jesus. Lord, bless the moments that we share now. Help us to not only hear what you're saying, but, but see it played out in our everyday life. And thank you for what you're doing in the Seattle Seahawks. And help the Mariners, Lord. I pray that because I don't want to get any mean emails from baseball fans who say I never care. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. I get a few of those every once in a while. You don't even care about the Mariners. I do, I do, I do. Just let me know when there's 500 games left in the regular season so I can pay attention. Oh, man. Um, do, do you remember a, an embarrassing moment from high school? Did you ever have an embarrassing moment from high school? Some of you looking at me like, no. And Well, for the rest of us, we had an, a, a, an embarrassing moment in high school. And for some of us, we had a lot of them. It just happens that my most embarrassing moment at Issaquah High School was at the Kinko Championship Basketball Game at Juanita High School. This happened in 1958. <laughs> and uh, if you've been to Juanita High School, the big field house, and it was Issaquah High School versus Mercer Island. We were rivals at the time because our coach coached under Coach... Uh, at Mercer Island, and so it was a big game, and as I remember, it was packed. I think we turned thousands of people away, <clears throat> and um, I was a, a starting forward. Of course, I, I use a basketball sports analogy at the beginning of my sermon to honor moms everywhere, because I know this is what you want, but I was a forward, listed as a power forward, to be exact, and 
It's a starter. It's not a big deal. And it's a big game. And I remember kind of feeling nervous. I remember feeling a little on edge and it was a packed house, and, and back then, I think the entire city church showed up, which was about 28 of us, and, and it, was, it was a big game. And the, the, right before the tip-off, I remember thinking, like, I can't seem to calm down, and it would only get worse. The ball's tipped, the game begins, and only two plays in, our big six foot 11, 275 pound center, he shoots the ball and he misses, and he usually made, and, and, and I, I, I kinda got the rebound. Instead of taking the rebound and collecting myself, pump faking, like I'm making moves now on stage, pump faking and going up, I decide midair to grab the ball and just throw it back at the rim. And I remember doing it going, what am I doing? Like I'm playing volleyball or something, and I look at my coach, and he's screaming, right? He's like, what are you doing? And I remember running down the court thinking, I don't know, right? And it would only get worse. A few plays later, the ball comes off the rim really hard, and I'm out at the three-point line. I catch the ball, and I turn towards our basket, and the entire court is open to me. It's what we like to call a fast break in the business. And <laughs> it was a joke. But, and so... All of a sudden, I'm like, well, all right, I got the whole court, so I, 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 I put down my head and start dribbling. I don't recommend this. And I'm just dribbling, and I'm dribbling. And if you've been to the field house at Juanita High School, it, it seems like a longer court than normal, okay? So I'm dribbling, dribbling, and I think to myself, I must be at the rim by now. And I decide not to look, not to check, but simply take off. This is a real story. You cannot make this up. So I, I just take off. And when I look up, like I, like I took off like this, I took off more like this, you know? I look up, and I have taken off at the free throw line. <laughs> now, if you're Dr. J or Michael Jordan or others, that is not a problem. Um, but it's a problem for me. So I take off, and I'm like, oh, what have I, what have I done? John was there. This is a real story. And I'm like, okay, well, th there's only one thing to do, finger roll, right? So <laughs> this is a real story. I mean, there's like 18,000 people at the game. I finger roll, and like, if the rim is here, the finger roll went here, and the ball just drops. And my coach is like, he's now screaming. Calls a timeout, right, just to talk to me. Calls a timeout, he's like, Smith, what are you doing? And I remember going, I don't know. <laughs> And he, and he says this, get it together, which always helps. If you're struggling, make sure you find someone who will yell at you, get it together. Man, that always gets you right, man. I mean, just, I just need someone to scream at me in the face. Get it together. Get your life together. Okay, that's what I needed. Thank you very much. Right? I didn't get it together. It got worse, and we lost. And that was the day I decided I would not declare for the NBA draft. It was weird. <laughs> Maybe you can relate to that. Have you ever had a situation or circumstance in your life you just can't get it together? Maybe you've been an elite athlete and had a bad day one time. That was also a joke. But seriously, maybe it's a lot more than a game. It's, it's real life. And because of your finances, you feel frazzled. Because of relationship breakdown, you feel all over the place. You can't seem to get it together. You can't seem to calm your emotions. You can't seem to get clarity. You can't seem to regain your perspective. You can't just get it 
together. You feel frantic. You feel anxious. You feel worried. You feel frustrated. You feel agitated. And no matter how many people scream at you to get it together, you just can't get it together. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost a relationship. Maybe, as I said, you've lost your perspective and you just can't seem to get it together. Big idea behind the other 316 and the collection of talks we've done is the reality is we live in a very uncertain, unstable world. It's unfair, frankly. It's not just, it's not right. There are so many things that happen in this life that just aren't fair. I've said it 10,000 times in the nine years of leading church home, and I'll say it again. If I could, I would tell you today that because you came to church on Mother's Day with your mom to honor God, God now says to you for the rest of your life, everything will be perfect and smooth sailing, and not one single bad thing will ever happen to you again. Like, if I could, I'd preach that every Sunday, but that's just not the case. That's not real life. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, and this life is challenging. Where will we find our security? Where will we find our confidence? Where will we find our faith? Where we will find our hope? Where will we be able to get up again tomorrow And believe that good things are in our future and that God is faithful and God is good. Well, of course, that brings us to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. More specifically, it brings us to the next verse, verse 17. Verse 16 says, this book, this story is so good and so profitable and so powerful, it can do this. Look at verse 17. It can, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete and equipped. Complete and equipped. Do you know what that word complete means? It means put together. The Bible tells us that this book, this storybook about Jesus is so profitable and so powerful, it can put you together. Not that everything is perfect in your life, but it can put you together. It can get your outlook right, your attitude right, your perspective right, your mentality right, even your words right. This book evidently has the power to do that. So if you find yourself today afraid, frustrated, confused, anxious, angry, worried, fearful, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 is for you. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how this works. How does this book, Ink on Paper, how does it do such transformative work in our life that literally, we're not talking figuratively, this is not Christian cliche, we're not sermonizing, we're not playing religious games, we're not filling a a, a time on Mother's Day because this is the right thing to do. We are here for the truth. We are here for what is real. We're here for what actually will transform our average Monday or Tuesday evening. And the Bible tells us that it is powerful, so much so, it can put you together again. It can shape you up so that you can put one foot in front of the other and live this life for the brief stay we are here to the fullest. Now I want to draw your attention We've gone to verse 16 and verse 17. Let's look at verse 15 in an effort to further understand 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Notice verse 15 says this. 
and how from childhood you have, acquainted, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further, let's give a little backstory and context. Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul now, most scholars believe he has months to live. When he writes 1 Timothy, Timothy is his star pupil. Timothy is now pastoring in a city known as Ephesus. Ephesus was a major metropolitan city, much like New York, Los Angeles, or Seattle. It was a place of much debate, much controversy, much news, much art and culture. And it's there that Timothy now is pastoring Ephesus. And by the way, the community of faith there is surging in growth, and thousands of people are joining the church. By this time, Paul is about to pass away. He has months left to live. When he writes 1 Timothy, he's in house arrest. There's some luxury there. There's some convenience there. There's some comfort there. By the time he writes 2 Timothy, his last writings, he is now in a dungeon. He's now in a prison. And we, by best we can tell historically, he's actually in chains. He's in rags. He's not in good shape. He has not been fed well. He is soon to die, and he seems to know that even in his writings. So that gives you a little bit of context that Paul is writing his last words to his son in the faith, if you will, and he's saying, hey, this book is important to the future of the church. It's important to Jesus' followers everywhere. But notice, while he's in chains, what Paul writes, one of the most important verses, in my opinion, that Paul has ever written. Notice what he says. He says, now... Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with sacred writings. He's talking about the scripture now. You've been acquainted with the scripture, which are able, here's what the scripture can do. They're able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. For salvation through Jesus Christ. Can I give you a translation of this verse? The Bible is about Jesus. I'm going to make a statement now. Hear me out. The Bible is not about the Bible. The Bible is not about the Bible. Do you know why we have mean Christians? Because they think the Bible is about the Bible. The Bible is not a collection of principles that we use to make ourselves feel exclusive in culture. The Bible is not a book to hurt people that don't believe in it. The Bible is only powerful to the degree that it points us to Jesus. For that which does not point to Jesus cannot save. And that's why, I'll, I'll prove this to you, Jesus says this to the religious leaders, the teachers of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He says this to them in John chapter 5. This year, the words of Jesus now, John chapter 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Whoa. And it is they that bear witness about me. Look how it says in the message, it's so clear. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. You know, the Bible itself says knowledge puffs up. And even Bible knowledge can make you prideful. But it's only when your Bible points you to Jesus, it'll make you humble and gracious. The Bible is about Jesus. But you miss the forest for the trees, Jesus says. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Oh, no, 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 no. We are not here today to celebrate a book 
of historical stories that give us success keys or principles or steps to effective living. We are here celebrating the main character, the lover of our soul, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. No, no, Paul is in chains, and he doesn't have much time to live. And he tells Timothy, he says, you've been well acquainted with the sacred scriptures, but I want to remind you what makes the scriptures sacred is that they can make you wise for salvation by pointing you to and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. I'll take it a step further. When it says sacred writings in verse 15, and when it says all scripture in verse 16, what scripture or writings is it talking about? Well, you know, if you know your history, the New Testament is not fully formed yet. There is not yet a New Testament in this writing. I'll take it a step further. Paul is telling Timothy that the Old Testament, when he says all scripture, he means all the Old Testament. When he says sacred, sacred writings, he means all the Old Testament. You mean to tell me, that's right, Paul is saying the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. If Abraham was here, he'd say, it's about Jesus. If Adam and Eve were here, they'd say, it's about Jesus. If Moses was here, he'd be like, guys, come on, it's about Jesus. If Ruth was here, she'd be like, stop making it about me and Boaz. It's about Jesus. If Hannah was here, if Esther was here, if Isaac was here, if Jacob was here, if Joseph was here, if David was here, if Joshua, Joshua would be like, I'm a type of Jesus. I'm trying to point you to Jesus. Right? It's all about Jesus. And, and it is only as powerful to the point that it leads us to Jesus. So all scripture is profitable because it points us to Jesus. It points us to a person, not merely a principle, but a person. We are not here celebrating moral principles. Ladies and gentlemen, let us elevate our living. We are here celebrating a person who is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form and everything is for him and through him and by him and about him and the heavens and earth declare the glory of the Lord. It is it's Jesus, always been Jesus, about Jesus. So what happens when we go to this love story and we look for the main character and we see him. Well, that's the three-part sequence that Paul seems to outline. He says, now, Timothy, in chains, he writes, all scripture is, I love this, it's breathed out by God. It's the living word because God breathed it out. It's got life in it as it points you to the person of Jesus. And he says it's powerful or it's profitable for teaching reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. I'd like to explain to you what Paul is saying here. He's saying when you go to this book and you recognize it makes you wise for salvation through Jesus, so the book is all about Jesus, pointing you to Jesus, and when you go to this book, here's this three-step process that happens. Number one, you start wading into the love story. Treat it like a story. Treat it like a love story, for that's how it is written. It is, in fact, the story of God. And he says it's powerful in that it teaches us. It teaches us. 
Now, one scripture says you'll have no need of a teacher for the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, will teach you when you go to this story. He'll teach you. And how will the Spirit of Jesus teach you? Well, the Spirit always seeks to reveal Jesus. As he did in Jesus' life and ministry, so he does today. When you go to this book looking for Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus says, that's what I do best. And before you know it, you start reading the scriptures, and you're not reading for Bible knowledge. You're not reading to puff yourself up. You're not reading to prove your friends wrong. You're not reading to make yourself feel better. You're reading because you need a Savior. You're reading because I need some deliverance. I need a king. I need a, I need a Lord. I need someone to lead my life. And you go looking for Jesus, and teaching starts to happen. And I call it reveling. And this is, in, in many ways, this is a, what's inside the meaning of this Greek word, is reveling starts to happen, which means you start to revel in what Jesus has done for you. And this is where the process of putting you back together again always starts. Right here where you're like, what? Jesus did what? Jesus loves me how much? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Wow, he is with me. He's for me. He's near to me. He's listening to me. He will heal me. He will restore me. He, he will talk to me. He will hug me. He will hold me. He will feed me. Wow! And before you know it, you start to glow in the goodness of God. You start to go, man, wow. And that's what happens to some of us even when we gather. We start singing or, or during the preaching, you're like, whoo, man, God is so good. And it's because we forget. And so when you go to the profitable power story of God looking for Jesus, all of a sudden here comes the teaching. And a lot of people think this word teaching means uh, a point number one, God is good. Point number two, you are not. Point number three, he'll save you. Point number four, fill in the blank church. That's fine. But this word teaching is not a, a clinical, mathematical, sequential. This word teaching speaks of sinking in to a story that becomes so real you get enveloped in it, and you start to revel in it, and it starts to become the theme of your life. You start to become peripheral to Jesus, not Jesus peripheral to, to, to you. And you start to go, whoa. And it results in things like, man, I'm grateful for God. <laughs> it results in like an attitude that your coworkers think is weird. Where you're like, man, it's a good day. They're like, it's pouring down rain, bro. And you're like, if we don't pretend like it's a good day, we'll never have a good day because it always rains. Just kidding. <laughs> but even people see you and say, come on, man. You always got a smile on your face. You, that can't be legitimate. Well, I just, I'm so grateful for Jesus. And you start, you know, I know it doesn't feel like teaching, but that's teaching. Teaching is telling the story again and again. Over and over. That's what teaching is. Over and over. This is what Jesus has done because of this is who he is. He pursued you. He loved you. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through his son the world might be saved. And all of a sudden you're like, Wow! It's pretty good. And how many know there are things that will happen in your life that a new sports car can't even fix? We got to own this, man. There are things that are so painful that will happen in your life, more square footage in your house can't fix it. 
This past week, two loved ones in our community who are past, I did not go to the mourning families and encourage them with a new Audi. That doesn't do nothing when you've lost a loved one. There's only one thing, that which is eternal, to believe and trust and have faith that even in the loss of a father or a father of the faith, that I can put my faith in Jesus, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and this stay on earth is short and brief, but soon we will be with him for eternity. Now, I don't got no problems with your car or your house, but sometimes those things can't fix a broken soul. So where are we going to find our confidence and our security? We'll find it in the teachings of the story of Jesus, where over and over we are reminded of his goodness and his grace. Now, we go from teaching, and notice the Bible says, and then reproof. This is the part nobody likes, because you go from teaching to rebuking. Now, a lot of people take this word, and they make an assumption about how God rebukes. And I'd like to just correct that by cross-referencing another scripture. Because the word training in 2 Timothy 3.16, this exact same Greek word is used in Ephesians. I think it's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. There it is. Listen now. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. There it is. That's the same word as training in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. In discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, hold on a second. Notice our heavenly father says, you earthly fathers, I want you to be like me, which is our heavenly father does not provoke his children to change his children. Now, what's provoke? I'll give you an easy illustration from my own parenting flaws. Here's how you provoke your children. You walk in, you said clean your room. You walk in to inspect the room, because that's good parenting. We're part inspectors. Save me, Lord. And you walk into the room, and here's how I provoke my children. And I need to get better at this. I'll go. Really? <laughs> really? And they're like, what? And I'm like, don't answer. They're like, but you said really. You know, it's rhetorical. It's called provoking my children. You think this is clean? Is this clean? Elliot, is this clean? Uh, yeah, no? Y yes. Uh, what is it? That's called provoking your children. It's a lose-lose for them, right? You're asking questions you want no answers for. You're trying to prove a point by manipulation. Really? Really great. You don't mean great at all. Really great. Really great cleaning, guys. But you don't mean great at all. You mean terrible. It's called provoking your children. God doesn't do that to us. God does not stand over you with his hand on his hip and go, really? Again? You did this in the 80s. Are you serious? Really? Still don't trust me? Still don't believe in me? Still won't give me this area of your life? Really? Really great. No, he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. So if we backtrack now and go to the word reproof or rebuke, we think the way we've been rebuked by our earthly fathers is how God works in our life. But God does not. That's why we'll relate to each other this way. That's why we'll rebuke each other with provoking mannerisms and attitudes. Really? Really, brother, you call yourself a Christian and you are wearing that on a Sunday? Oh, she is not saved. Look at that skirt. <laughs> that is not the attitude and spirit of Jesus. And we'll prove that in Ephesians. God does not provoke us when he trains us or disciplines us. And so when it says reprove or rebuke, it's different 
than how oftentimes we experience in our everyday life. The word reproof, I would like to use the word reveal, reveal. Where there is a reveling, that is the teaching of the love of Jesus and looking for Jesus in Scripture, then there comes this reveal. And I'll explain the reveal like this. is All of a sudden you're in the story and you're just reading about Jesus. And all of a sudden you, are, you start to track with him as he goes through the whole narrative, Genesis to Revelation. And you're seeing him and you're seeing how he lives. You're seeing his mannerisms. You're seeing his heart. You're seeing how he engages and loves and cares for humanity and nations and people groups. And you're like, wow, God, what you did for Esther and what you did for Paul and John. And wow, it's amazing how you do this. And then all of a sudden, you know on your GPS, that blue line that you're supposed to follow, which I accidentally rarely do, you know what happens when you get off that blue line? What does your GPS do? A re redirecting. Redirecting. That's what happens in the story of God. Is all of a sudden you're following Jesus. By the way, we are not here, again, following a concept or a principle. We're not here trying to apply key successful steps to effective living. We are simply following our rabbi. And in Jesus' day, when you followed a rabbi, it was said that you stayed in their dust. And we now have a rabbi, a messiah, a king, a savior, and we are to stay in his dust. We are to follow him wherever he goes. That is not a concept. That is a real, spiritual, actual journey that we're supposed to go on. It is supposed to affect our hobbies. It is supposed to affect our days. It's supposed to affect our finances. It's supposed to affect our words and the people we engage with, love, and care for. Because we're in the dust of our rabbi. But what happens? Sometimes he veers this way and we veer this way. And when you're reading the story, all of a sudden it's a reveal. And it's not one that says, you're bad. All of a sudden you go, whoa, wait, I see Jesus and I'm redirecting. And all of a sudden, and it comes with a desire oftentimes and a passion to go, man, I want to follow Jesus, I don't want to do my own thing in this area of my life. I want to live, love, and look like Jesus. There's reveling, there's revealing, and then it says there's correcting, there's correcting, there's correcting. And based on my study of these words, I believe it works like a revealing, excuse me, it looks like a reveling, a revealing, I have to call the word correct, a reminding. And this has happened about 10,000 times in my life. It sounds way more uh, incredibly spiritual and amazing. It's actually a day-to-day -day thing that happens in your journey with Jesus where you're like just kind of thinking about Jesus, reading scripture, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, God, you're so good. And then all, your, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I need to adjust that area in my life. Okay, and then lastly, you're reminded, wait a minute, this is who I am. This is what I want. Have you ever physically been somewhere and you, all of a sudden you're like, what am I doing? This is not who I am. I am out of here. And you're like, no, this is not who I am. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's, and I'm not what I do. I am what he has done. This is, and that correction is a reminder. Hey, 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 hey. It's called the conviction of righteousness. The spirit of Jesus does this. He convicts you and reminds you who you are. Hey, that is not who you are. Don't pretend you're righteous. Oh, that's right. That's who I am. And then, and then Paul, and it's tough to tell in the original language, but I tend to think that Paul is using the statement training in righteousness 
to summarize these three steps. He seems to kind of say it's basically what he's talking about is a training in righteousness. And I'm so excited to share with you what I believe Paul is passionately portraying months before his death to his star pupil and pastor Timothy in Ephesus. He says this book, when focused on Jesus and you look for Jesus, it will You'll revel in it. It'll reveal things in your life. It'll remind you who you are. Oh, Timothy, it's called training in righteousness. Now, what's training in righteousness? Now, if you've ever studied this word or studied the concept of righteousness in the Bible, there are, if I could summarize this way, and this is somewhat crude, but there are two thoughts or two camps amongst believers. And that is that righteousness is simply right standing. Righteousness is all about, it's positional. It's all about right standing. Jesus says it's done, it's finished, I'm right, he's gifted me right. It doesn't matter what I do, how I live, I'm righteous. And that's great. The other camp says, oh, come on. You need some holiness in your life and you need to live right and act right and dress right and stop smoking because you need righteousness. And in church history, there has been whole movements over here and whole movements over here, I'd like to say that actually these are distinctions. I like to call these distinctions without difference. Distinctions without difference. For both are true when it comes to righteousness. But I read some scholars who said training in righteousness is a training in how to live a holy life. And if you're not careful, listen now, if you focus on living right and not by what he's giving you, you end up focusing on you. And there is no power when you focus on you. At least no lasting power. There's no sustaining power. No, if it doesn't point to Jesus, it can't change you. It can't save you. It can't transform you. No, righteousness starts with what Jesus has done for me. And that's where the training begins. Oh, he made me right. He covered my sins. I am forgiven. Past, present, future sins. You mean to tell me the cross is proactive? Yes, sir. Whatever you do in 2029, he's going to forgive you. In fact, you're already forgiven. You're already forgiven. You're already forgiven. You're already forgiven. Now, now we need to spend some time on that. That's called training in righteousness. And that's where it begins. Now, when you understand what you have been gifted and granted and the stance you've been given, you are now right with God. And once God makes you right, you can't be wrong. You are right. Now, that will move you into a desire to change some of your daily habits. And once in a while, you're like, man, this is not who I am. Why do I talk like that? Why do, I, why do I still participate in it? This is not a hobby. This is horrible. I'm changing this in my life. That's not what I want to look at. That's not what I want to digest. It might even affect your diet. Yeah. God's, God's wild. He'll be like, drink more water. You know, like, and less Coke. You know, it's like, Judah, don't get too personal. Less Diet Coke. But the point is, God will get into your life, and it, it's not a, it's not a manipulative, it's not, he's, not, he's not trying to annoy you. It's this fatherly, loving, caring. And all of a sudden you go, God, I can't believe you've done this for me. I'm in right standing, which is producing in me every day right living. But the focus 
is always Jesus. Jesus. I can prove it to you. Look at 2 Timothy 2.22. 2 Timothy 2.22. And here it's the same word. It's actually a similar word, but same sense righteousness that we see in 2 Timothy 3.16. And notice what it says. It says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Can I ask you, where is the power in this verse? Some people run off 2 Timothy 2.22 and they, they see the word flee and they start fleeing. But that's not where the power is. The power is not in fleeing. The power is not in focusing on right living. The power is in what's righteousness. It's the gift given to us through Jesus Christ. It is pursuing Jesus because he first pursued us. And the power is, wow, Jesus, thank you. This is amazing. And you know what's crazy? You won't even know it, but you'll be fleeing all kinds of stuff. And one day somebody's going to walk up to you and be like, man, you are so committed to your spouse. What do you mean? You, you only have eyes for your wife. I've watched you. And you go, oh, well, thank you. And it's not because you over here going, I'm going to be a holy man of God. I'm going to read every book on sexual purity. I'm going to do it. 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 You just got grateful. Started going, wow, God, thank you. And you know what's crazy? This right here will lead to, God, thank you for my wife, the mother of our children. Thank you for our marriage. Thank you for life. Thank you for sunshine. Thank you for green grass. Wow, the rain makes it so beautiful here, God. You'll start thanking God for rain. Because it starts with pursue. Boy, Christians all over the world are known for fleeing. Run for your life. It's 2018. The culture's so bad. Everyone move to Montana. Let's get out of here. Get out of Hollywood. Leave Seattle. It's godless. Not Paul, not Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, and he's not saying run for your life. He's saying pursue righteousness. Got to help you avoid some of those compromises and challenges, but you stay in Ephesus, Timothy. You stay in Ephesus, Timothy. I'm telling you, we're going to go where it's dark. We're going to go where the story of Jesus is not known. We're going to go where the powers of darkness have got a hold on people's lives. But we're going to go where the message and story of Jesus is needed. And there's going to be a strength and a courage in your life to tell the story of Jesus and the love of Jesus. Our life is not defined by fleeing and being afraid. Our life is defined by faith and courage and walking with Jesus and pursuing righteousness. That's who we are. So we've only just begun. And in the legacy and the honor of Pastor Don Ostrom, Aunt Marlene and I were talking on Friday. and I said, tell me the story again, Aunt Marlene. She says, we were 21. God said, go to the Philippines. They didn't know a single soul in the Philippines. And they got in a boat. They got in a freight boat. And it took them three weeks to get to the Philippines. And they landed not knowing a soul. And I said, what were you thinking? She said, God told us to. And I said, man, we need to recover that kind of faith in this generation and in this community, in the spirit of Abraham. Sometimes God says, go, and I'll work it out as you go. You trust him. I'm telling you, God is telling some people in this church, sometimes you got to go. You got to go. Well, how will it work out? We're about to find out. We're going to trust God. And I make a commitment to you, wherever God tells us to go, we're going to go. 
And church home will not just be in Seattle, and church home will not just be in Los Angeles. We're going to go where the world needs us to go, and we're going to tell the story of Jesus and play our part in the kingdom of God around the world. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. It's not time to leave Ephesus. We need more believers in Ephesus who are telling the story of Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm ending right here. But one of the meanings of the word complete in verse 17, this is what happens when the story is all about Jesus and there's this reveling and there's this revealing and there's this reminding and it's the training in righteousness and the focus on what he's doing. And it says it makes you complete. It, 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 the word, one of the words complete, it means fresh. It means it makes you fresh. <laughs> Has it gotten old? Has following Jesus gotten old? Has church gotten old? Has the Bible gotten old? Has his story gotten old? Has this way of life gotten old? Has trusting God gotten old? Has being generous gotten old? Has stepping out in faith gotten old? Are you just ready to retire from the faith? Are you ready to retire from the adventure and journey of following Jesus? I'm telling you, there's going to be a fresh energy and a fresh strength and a fresh perspective and a fresh faith that's going to grow in your heart to trust God and to follow him wherever he asks you to go. I have faith for that today. I have faith that right now as we're talking in real time in this moment as we speak that there is a freshness. God is putting you back together again. God's not yelling in your face. Get it together. He's going to go ahead and put you together and give you a freshness and a vigor and a strength and an energy to do what God has called you to do. Your steps are sure. Your steps are secured. God's gone ahead of you. Every step will be sure. The steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. He's ordering your steps. If right now you're wondering to yourself, God, what is going on now? What about what's happened to my job? What's happened to my family? What's happened to my future? What's happened to my plans? What's happened to my preparations? What are you doing? This is not what I thought would happen. This is not where I thought you would lead me. I'm telling you, God is faithful and God is true. And what he started in you, he'll be faithful to see it through. I am talking to somebody this morning morning. We've not been this way before, church. Please hear me. We've not been this way before. I drove to church this morning, and it's a crazy thing to think that my dad's gone, and Pastor Aaron's gone, and Pastor Don's gone, and some of you have been around long enough to know the significance of those three men. And I'm thinking, God, this is, it would be really helpful if one of them would still be here. I could use a phone call right about now. We've not been this way before, but we're going to keep moving forward.